Welcome to the Sunday Tennis Q&A with high performance coach Chris Lewitt. Chris Lewitt is an internationally respected author and educator and is regarded as one of the leading junior development coaches in the world. Join Chris weekly for the most intelligent tennis talk show on the planet as Chris answers questions from his audience around the world. And now, here's Chris. What's up everyone? Sunday night Q&A live with me, Chris Lewitt, how are you? I'm sorry I missed you guys last week. I was traveling. We did a big workshop, uh, a camp up in Vermont, but I'm back. And I'm here to talk tennis on a Sunday night, answer all your questions, whether they be technical, tactical, or on junior development, or even adult development, any kind of development, tennis development. I'm here to answer all your questions and have an intelligent tennis conversation. I'm here with my co-host, Sammy, who's currently asleep. Sammy, you want to say hello? He doesn't. He's tired, but I will say hello for him. Hey, bud. How are you? Good night. Okay, Sammy's kind of sleepy, so I'll take over the show as I normally do. Guys, thank you for tuning in. Let me know if you have any tennis questions tonight. Especially if you're part of our online school, clta.teachable.com, clta.teachable.com. We're getting a lot, a lot of signups now for some of our new courses, like our new forehand course, hashtag WIP. It's up there now. It's available. You can study with me from anywhere in the world. And I encourage anyone who's in our online school to log in, tune in on Sunday nights and ask me any technical questions that they have when they're working on their forehand or if they're taking our footwork course, which is called hashtag flow. So we've got a lot of cool stuff on the Teachable site, clta.teachable.com. And you guys are welcome to check it out. And we're doing a lot of cool stuff on our YouTube channel, which is just youtube.com forward slash Chris Lewitt. But guys, I see we're getting some people signing in. Usually it takes a little while for viewers to to join the program, and then we start getting a nice selection of questions and comments. So I see that Frank Solana is watching and waving. Thank you very much. Really appreciate appreciate you tuning in to the show. And Wandre Calvacanti is waving. Very cool. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for waving. Rosario Escolar Rey Tuerta is waving. Thank you very much. Appreciate you tuning in. I appreciate you guys supporting the Sunday night show. I'm trying to keep the show going as long as I can. I envision envision the show going on for uh, many seasons, and I would like to grow the show and the audience. So please tell your friends about the program and tune in regularly, and you can have all of your questions on Tennis Answered, and you can also have a lively uh, discussion. And, and some people don't like to ask questions. They just like to listen and learn. And that's fine too. But normally I have a few topics on my mind. So tonight I am focusing on the serve. Uh, as you guys may know, I'm a technical coach. I'm a hardware coach. And I like to work on the serve and serve technique. So I'd be happy to answer any questions you guys have on serve. Anything related to serve junior, uh, serves for juniors or for adults and especially technical progression. So I have a few of those areas on my mind. I've been working with a young boy this weekend 
I'm really excited about what we've been doing with his serve, his serve progression. So if you have any thoughts on that, questions about the serve, let me know. Serve technical development, that's one of my favorite areas. And we had kind of an interesting debate this afternoon uh, with one of my coaches. We had a friendly debate about uh, serve technique, and we can maybe get into that too. We were talking about which leg on the serve is more dominant when you're exploding up into the, the ball. And, and he felt that the, the front leg is 60% and the back leg is 40. And I said, well, the way I understand it is the back leg is usually closer to 60% and the front leg is 40. So we had sort of a debate going back and forth. And then I actually tweeted Mark Kovacs, who's a friend of mine, who is really well known as an expert on the serve and serve biomechanics. And he said it starts out ideally with the back leg 60-40 and then it actually shifts to the front leg before liftoff of the ground. So I thought that was interesting. And I have some follow-up questions for Mark about that. So I guess the, the idea is that the back leg is loading about 60%. It's got to vary depending on the player. So it can't be the same exact ratio for every player. The back leg's loading, let's say, approximately 60%, and then it's the, the ratio shifting somewhat to the front leg before liftoff. That's what Mark Kovac said. So that's, that's pretty interesting. I, I trust his data and judgment on that. So that, that seems to make sense to me. So maybe it goes to like 40, 60, back leg to front, as you're exploding upward. But it seems to me that he's stressed a lot of back leg loading. Like that's the primary driver of the hip. You know, it gets, I think, I think he says it, it gets the hip accelerating upward more quickly. And then that helps with the shoulder over shoulder biomechanically. So I'm kind of interested in that, in what's happening there with the legs. And more importantly, how should we teach it? You know, I always try to teach my players to load more with the back leg and get a good explosion and for me, everybody jumps off the front leg. That's pretty common. But the back leg loading is not, you don't see it as much. So I like to stress that. But I had a, a friend of mine who is a really good coach working, working for me in my, my program this afternoon. He was saying how he likes to do the, he likes to stress the front leg loading because the front leg is 60% of the drive. And my argument is, well, yeah, the front leg is always, everybody jumps off the front leg. The, the issue is that most kids and anyone who's learning how to serve, typically they don't use the, the back leg to drive upward that much and they don't get that hip firing. Oh, yeah, Peter's on the, the program. Peter, I was just talking about that serve debate with the back leg versus front leg. So my friend Peter is uh, just joined the program. Maybe he'll throw in a comment. It's kind of an interesting debate that we're having tonight. Uh, technical debate for all you technical gear, uh, gearheads or technical junkies. Let's see, I got a lot of friends signing on. Hugo Ball Green, my trusty sidekick and assistant coach. Thank you for tuning in, Hugo, and waving. I appreciate it. Rosario Escolar Retuerta is waving. Thank you so much, Rosario. Appreciate you guys joining the program and listening in. If you guys have any questions, feel free to shoot them at me. You can make a comment and I will try to get to all of the comments tonight, if I can, before I get too sleepy. We always do this every Sunday night. We try to go on around 9.45. Tonight I had a bedtime issue, so I had to get my son to bed, and then I'm sorry we got started a little bit late, but 
you know, we'll get rolling along here and try to get some tennis talk going. My friend Nate Pagel is watching. Nate's uh, an excellent coach coming up. And thank you for waving. I appreciate you tuning in regularly, Nate. It's really nice to have you on the program. Nate's a very intelligent coach. And I always say that we have a very smart audience for this program. We, we have a very intelligent discussions, especially when we get technical. You know, it takes a certain type of coach who's willing to study biomechanics and to study research and try to make evidence-based decisions on, on teaching technique or teaching anything in tennis, really. So let's see who else is joining in here. Ubiratan Luis de Menenzes Roca. That, I think I've seen that name on the program before. Thank you for waving. I really appreciate you supporting the show. Julian Ramirez Luna is waving. We're starting to build some steam here with people tuning in. You guys are a passionate group staying up late with me on a Sunday night. I appreciate that. Carlos Carrera is a regular on the show. Thank you for waving, amigo. Paige Buck is watching. What's up, Paige? Thanks for waving. My friend Peter is waving. Cromwell Teves is waving. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. My good friend Ish Narang is watching. Thank you, Ish, for tuning in. Ish, do you have any technical questions? We're going to talk serve. We already talked a little bit about serve and serve technique and loading. Ish, do you have any questions about junior development you want to throw out there on the board? Or just listening in? That's fine, too. Bo Berglund is waving. Thank you, Bo. I believe Bo's tuned in before. Thank you for, for watching the show. So the other few topics that I had in my mind were, I know I've had a lot of requests to talk about the two-handed backhand, biomechanically and technically and, and how you teach it. So we could get into that debate. You know, there's a lot of different grips that you see, grip structures on the two-hander. It's, it's pretty interesting because the grip structures, there's a number of a variety of grip structures as opposed to the forehand. You know, the forehand is just one hand on the racket and, you know, how many grips can you have? But the grip, the grip variations multiply with the two-hander because you got two hands on the stick and they can be in, you know, different combinations. So that, that's kind of an interesting aspect of the two-hander. And the other interesting part for me about the two-hander is, you know, how do you get the arms to synchronize? How do you get the arms to work in unison? Because it's a two-hander, but the arms should flow together as one. There should be harmony between the arms. So that's what I always look for in a good two-hander, are the arms working in harmony together. And also, I'm interested in the technical evolution of the two-hander. I don't think we've seen... I don't think we've seen the the end of the two-hander in terms of evolution. I, I think there's something coming, and I've suggested this on in some essays and postings and musings. You know, I, I think that the two-hander is going to evolve somehow. I've posited that it may evolve into another forehand. So you may have uh, an ambidextrous forehand, you know, a left a lefty and a righty forehand. I've also suggested that there there should be some way to reverse the two-hander. I mean, when you're caught late and you need more spin or you're hitting a sharp hook shot, there should be a way to hook it. You see sometimes the way, for example, Sharapova, she goes to a, a left-handed shot. She has a pretty good level of ambidexterity. When she's in trouble or caught late or sometimes on the run, she'll go to a left-handed shot, basically a forehand. And I'm suggesting that that may be something we could teach. You know, it's not something that just has to be a random, a random dance or a random walk. 
it's something that we could actually try to teach kids so that when they're caught late and, and the ball's late in the hitting zone, they could reverse their two-hander by maybe letting go of the front arm so they could get a nice uh, upward brush, get extra spin, and, and maybe even use it, that shot to hook angles. Or the other idea that I've been sort of mulling around, I mean, I haven't taught any of this stuff yet, but it's sort of on my mind, is with the two-hander finishing lower. You know how many of the top forehands are finishing down by the hip? They have, I, I call it the inverted finish. You know, are we going to see more inverted finishes or finishes to the side of the shoulder with professional two-handed backhands? I think you already do see some of that now, like with Murray and with some other pros, they finish more to the side of the shoulder. I can kind of show you what that looks like if anyone's interested. But instead of following through to the neck on the top of the shoulder, I think it's not a huge leap to see more of the, the two-handers finishing with, with uh, better windshield wiper motion with the left arm so the left arm is going to do more wiper and the the follow through is going to be more to the side of the shoulder i already see that in some students that i have and i don't correct it i don't say they have to be to the top of the shoulder i don't know what do you guys think i i think the the follow through should be to the side of the shoulder like to the bicep perhaps that that's probably the first variation we'll see more of and then i'm I think there should be a reverse, probably not with both hands on the racket. That would look kind of weird. It, it kind of feels awkward. I think the best way to reverse it is by letting go, which is kind of like a left-handed forehand. Bo Berglund throws out the first comment of the night, and he says, think it's intuitive. Uh, add to that, Bo, and I'll, and I'll try to respond, but you know, we're talking two-hander and reversing the follow-through. You know how players reverse. Uh, I guess I'll just show you guys. So, you know, what it would look like is Have you guys seen Sharapova do it? You know, she kind of she comes with two and then as she's coming through, she'll, you know, you come up, there'd be some sort of reverse that way or if you're caught late that way. You know, something like that when, when you need to get more spin and you're, you know, or you need to like hook a shot. That's what I'm kind of thinking. So you'd have a reverse. And then what I'm talking about with the finish is finishing more. Can you see that? More here. Instead of like the, the finish up by the neck, the top of the shoulder, I'm talking about more of a finish here. Or, you know, it, it starts to feel real awkward to go any lower. So the only way you get a finish to the hip would be to let go. So it'd be like a two-handed shot and then a windshield wiper. Something like that. You know, I'm just sort of throwing out some interesting ideas here, some interesting technical ideas, potential, evo you know, potential evolution, evolutions of the two-handed backhand. That's, that's all I can think of, really, unless we're just going to switch to having more ambidextrous players with actual forehands, because that's another possibility. I think that's, I don't know why we don't see more of that. I think we should train ambidexterity and teach more, more dual hand forehands, basically. But it could be like a combo deal, like a two-hander, and then you let go. That, that would work, too. And then you could get more windshield wiper, you could get more whip, maybe you could get like the same revolutions that you get on a on a one-handed forehand you might be able to get that with 
with the two-hander because right now I haven't seen the RPM studies. Have you guys seen any studies on the two-handed RPM? But do you think you can get as much RPM? I mean spin. Can you get as much effect? You know, they call it in Spain the effect. Can you get as much effect on the two-hander as you can with the with a one-hand forehand? Because I don't think you can. But maybe if you let go, if you go with a semi-western grip and you let go, you, you might be able to achieve the same RPMs as you would with a traditional you know, semi-western or modern forehand. That's what I'm sort of thinking. But does anyone know if, if a, if a, a two-hander, like even Rafa's two-hander, he gets a lot of spin on that two-hander. He's not getting close to the revolutions that he's getting on his forehand, right, in terms of spin. So that's sort of what I'm talking about. I, again, I think go, following, following through up here is a spin killer. Following through to the neck on both sides. You know, I talk about this a lot. To me, that, that movement up to the neck is, is an is a RPM and an MPH killer. It, it's, it kills acceleration. It kills elasticity. So that's why you don't see as much rotation on the ball when you see traditional follow-throughs. That's why you see so many players who are finishing across more, wipering and finishing lower. You know, I call it the inverted finish, whatever you want to call it. You know. All right, so there's a lot of... A lot of uh, comments shooting up. Let me try to get to them. Bo Berglund is in the house tonight. What's up, Bo? Let's see what you got here for me. He says, I was thinking, wondering if you think it's intuitive depending on the individual on the finish. The hook is very interesting. Hadn't thought of it. Cool. Yeah. These are just sort of ideas. You know, I'm not really, you know, you got to have some balls to just go take a kid and teach something that's never been done on the tour before, that, that takes some serious cojones, right? And you got to get a parent who is willing to take that risk too. So I haven't really done any of this yet with, with, with my... You know, I try to tell people if I've tried it or not so, so people have a, a clear sense of what I'm, what I'm talking about and what I'm after. But these are sort of you know, ideas, creative ideas that, that may... You may see it, but... Sometimes you don't want to wait for it to hit the tour. You want to do something, you know, sometimes I want to do something that's never been done before, mainly to prove that it's possible and, and maybe to explore something that might be biomechanically better or biomechanically uh, if more efficient or more, more flexible, more, more, you know, adapt, something that, uh, a technique that, that can be adapted better to a certain situation. Uh, Bo says, the hook is very interesting. I hadn't thought of that. That's cool, man. That's what I'm doing. I'm just throwing out some ideas. Bo says, letting go might make a two-hander less vulnerable. Right. The two hands is kind of, you know, sometimes you just want to get, get rid of that second hand because you can't reach back as far. If you use the left hand and let go of the right, I'm speaking for right-handers, you can take balls later and still sort of manufacture good shot and that's that, that's what happens on the forehand that's why the reverse forehand and the reverse uh hook like the hook forehand are very popular because the game the ball's coming so fast and players are getting caught late and so what do they have to do they get caught a little bit late in the hitting zone and instead of following through normally they follow through a little more up 
like around their head or or they they have a, a bit more of like a buggy whip you know you see a lot more more of what some people call the buggy whip like Jeff Salzenstein calls it the buggy whip whatever you want to call it you know I call it the reverse forehand and you see a lot more of that now because the ball's coming so fast on the pro tour that players are getting caught a little later you know and I think that's one of the primary reasons why players reverse or they hook is because they're, they they get caught fractionally late. I know when I'm hitting and I get a, just fractionally late, you can't even sometimes see it from far away. I feel it though. And my, I notice that my follow through, I'm not thinking that way, but my follow through goes up here or or it goes uh, a little high, a little higher or around my head because of my contact point. You know, the contact point and it sort of triggers that finish. But I wasn't really thinking about it before I was swinging. It just sort of triggers that. Although it's also possible that the finish may be driven by the tactical, the tactical uh, goal. So that that's also a possibility. Like so let's say I wanna I wanna hook a shot cross court short. I'm thinking tactically short angle, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of manufacture a bit more spin by hooking my my follow through maybe a little bit of both you know, we always talk about the tactical priority or the tactical decision affecting the finish but i also think many times it's the positioning of the body and how how late or early you are i know that when i'm early and when i'm positioned well i'm going to follow through a certain way typically and when i'm not positioned well that's going to dictate my finish and i think sometimes we don't talk about that as much we talk a lot about the tactic determining what the swing looks like, but I'm talking about the positioning and the contact point as well. Right, so Bo says the, the two-hander might be less vulnerable when pulled out wide if you're able to let go and use a left-handed forehand, more or less. And I think that's exactly right. That's what I'm talking about. And that is one of the liabilities of a two-hander. You don't have as much reach. You don't have quite as much reach. And many two-handers don't if you see the way Djokovic does it it's pretty amazing how he stretches out wide and you know into a, a deep split and is able to manufacture shots with the two hands but probably the more efficient way to do it is to let go and use a, a left-handed forehand you know that's the way to cover the court better and to be able to utilize all of the hook and reverse finishes that the the one-hander the one-handed forehand allows so that's sort of how I see it happening. So whether some players are two-handers, two-hander hybrids, like they're a hybrid two-hander and sometimes they let go. And Sharapova does that now. You see some ambidextrous players do that now. It happens from time to time. What I'm saying is you could teach that. You could teach that to kids to switch to the, the left hand. And the other, the other thing is you, you might just see more dual hand forehands so you see a lefty and a righty forehand and on the show in the past if you if you look back on i'm not sure which episode it was we had a long discussion about this and i showed you guys how i do the grips you know there's a way to to hold the racket so that you don't you don't um, lose any reach so that's one of the big issues is how do you hold the racket to have two-handed forehand two forehands on each side without without losing reach on one side and so I, I call it the preacher grip you you hold it sort of like you're praying you hold the racket like you're praying and it and you can go either way left or right 
with the preacher grip. You know, if anyone wants to see that, let me know. I'll show you the preacher grip. All right, we've got a bunch of friends tuning in. Scott Groth or Groth is watching. Thank you, amigo. Thank you for waving. I really appreciate you tuning in and supporting the show. Scott's a regular on the program. I appreciate you guys tuning in late on a Sunday night. My good friend Michael Furman is watching. Michael is helping me with our online operations and our new online school, clta.teachable.com. Go there, guys. Check it out. We have a lot of new online courses. We have a new library there with, with almost 200 videos that I filmed. And the resources are, are just growing. We're growing that resource every week, every month. And we're adding new new material, new lessons, and new cool features. So check it out, uh, teachable.com, clta.teachable.com. It's our online school. It's the next-gen. We call it the next-gen Spanish-style school, like the only Spanish academy online. It's pretty cool. Let's see. Peter says, I think he's talking about the back end. Yeah, so my friend Peter says, thank you for for watching Peter and thank you for contributing to the show I appreciate the comments he says I believe that the main problem on the back end is disconnection between the bottom and the top hand yes I think that's true and that's sort of what I'm describing when I say there has to be a harmony there has to be harmony between the arms and sometimes you see two-handed back ends that are very disconnected and they're very inharmonious or unharmonious you know, the, the arms don't flow well together. I can tell you that my friend Peter Banyas has an incredible two-handed backhand. A world-class backhand, actually. So he's a wonderful player, really high-level uh, player. And Peter, your arms flow very well together. You have a great harmony between your arms. There's no disconnection. There's no fighting. You know, some coaches call it the two-hander when the arms don't cooperate well. They say that the arms look like they're fighting each other. And that's definitely something you want to look for. It's sometimes an indication that the player might be better off with a one-handed backhand. And I've written a lot and talked a lot about that in previous shows and in, in previous articles that I've, uh, that I've produced. And sometimes when you see a two-hander that's not connected well, that's not, the arms aren't flowing in harmony, it's an indicator that you may have a natural one-hander there. And that's something to experiment with. The other thing that it may indicate is you got to do a lot of work on the left side of the body to get the left side helping and contributing. So you can do a lot of left-handed forehands to help develop that flow, that synchronization of the arms. So those are your two options. When you see a two-handed backhand that doesn't flow, that's not connected well, you can work on the left side of the body and train that and try to get that flow and the synchronization or you can try to let go of the left side of the body and, and work a lot on one-handed shots. Some players have a natural one-hander, and there's kind of a way to spot it. I don't know if you guys have experience making those switches from two hands to one, but I, I can see it right away. When I see a two-hander that is a natural one-hander, I can spot it from a mile away. I've made a lot of those changes from two to one, a lot of those transitions, and I have a number of those kids right now. Some of them we feature on our YouTube channel. Some of them are on the CLTA library. And you can kind of see it. You can kind of see the front arm being dominant 
and the left arm's sort of tagging along. It's not really doing anything. So, you know, it's kind of interesting, though, that when you do see a two-hander that looks kind of funky, doesn't look right, there's usually, it usually means you, got, you have some work to do, but it can mean that you have a natural one-hander in there. And the reason why that happens is because a lot of kids are boxed into two hands. At many clubs, two hands are taught exclusively, and the kids aren't even allowed to experiment with a one-hander. Hand, so you have a certain amount of kids, maybe 10 or 20%. By the way, I think you see a similar amount now in the top 20. You see maybe you know, four or five players out of the top 20 or so with a one-hander. And that's kind of what I see in my own you know, practice as a junior development coach. I see you know, maybe, maybe two out of 10 kids are potential one-handed candidates they have the strength and the coordination, and they also don't have a, a very connected two-hander. A lot of them are taught two-handers when they're young, and then as they grow older, uh, it just doesn't look right. They're, they, they're maybe struggling with the shot, and you can sort of see that they're, they're hitting the two-hander primarily with the dominant right arm. This is for right-handed players, and the left arm is just sort of dragging along or fighting and and it affects the line of the shot, it affects the extension, it affects the power and the elasticity of the shot. So that's something, definitely something to look out for on the technical hardware side when you have a player that's got kind of a funky two-hander. The other thing you can do is the Jim Courier, Nick Boletari approach, and you can just sort of leave it the way it is and try to have a bigger forehand. That's, that's kind of a funny story how Nick address the issue. You know, Courier had kind of a funky looking two-hander. I don't know if he's a one-handed candidate or not. I'd have to see him as a kid, but you know, instead of changing it, Nick was like, well, we'll just we'll just work on that beast of a forehand, you know. Okay, let's go down some of the comments here. I know we have a lot of people chiming in. We have a nice lively show tonight. I really appreciate you guys supporting the show and making this show great. Staying up with me on a Sunday night, talking tennis, talking technique, my favorite thing. You know, I'm a hardware coach. I like the software, but you guys know where my first love is. It's, it's, it's in the hardware. It's, in, it's also in juniors, you know, helping kids develop. We do have some adults that I'm helping, especially now online. I'm getting some new online students who are adults, which is kind of cool for me. Going to help out those, those guys and girls. I should say ladies. So Jim Kane says... Observing more and more pros with the inverted finish below, do you agree with me that we should intro the next-gen strokes early, more natural with elasticity of youth and not tainted by some coaches? Yes, Jim, I do agree with that completely, 100%. I believe you can introduce modern elastic ground strokes to kids as young as, let's say, right from the beginning, four five, six, seven, eight, pretty much any age. I don't feel that you need to teach outdated technique with linear swings and follow-throughs to the neck, follow-throughs to the top of the shoulder. I don't think we need to teach that stuff anymore. And in fact, I've proven that dozens of times on my own teaching court. I have many, many kids who I've started right from scratch, case studies, no, they're not scientific studies, but these are my own case studies. And I started the kids from the very beginning with modern swings, inverted finishes, topspin, 
open stances, semi-open stances, also some closed stances, a mix of stances, jumping, hip rotation, you know, at, at moderate speeds because they're little. You don't want to exaggerate too much and go too crazy. But in, in a safe way, I think you can teach all of these things to young children, and it's not a big deal. And there's so many coaches who are stuck in the past, they're inframed in a certain mindset, they, they're not able to think outside the box, and they're not able to wake up and realize that we don't need to teach two different styles to kids, we can just teach the way players do it, more or less, on the pro tour, and we can teach the future. We don't have to teach the past and then hope that somehow down the road the kids morph into, into swinging like the pros or, you know, what have you, you know. I have a number of good examples. We will be posting a new case study with a student of mine who started with me at 12 and he was completely raw and I taught him, uh, just as you're, you're describing, a modern forehand with whip and elasticity and jumping and hip rotation and semi-open stance and now he has a beautiful world-class style forehand and we have the before and after I can just we'll make a case study of it we'll post it on YouTube we'll post it on social media and maybe people the more they see the videos before and after they'll start believing they'll believe with their own eyes you know I think that's the best way to convince people you just show them show them that it's possible I've seen it with my own eyes for years now and I think that's one of the reasons why I'm trying to document my on-court work because there's so many naysayers and there's so many people that are not there with me they're not seeing the technical evolution over time on my teaching court so I just want to prove it to everyone that you don't have to teach the stiff outdated strokes you can just teach it nicely you know safely in a modern way and it saves the kids time and I think they start playing better more quickly and they will play ultimately much better because you're not taking the risk that they might not evolve into a modern stroke you know some of those kids that are taught outdated styles they never change you know they develop those habits for life and there's they're very tough to, to it's very tough to make that that leap into a modern form I'll give you a really interesting example I don't know if, if you guys are interested but I'm sorry, I will try to get, we're getting a lot of comments here. I will try to get to the comments one by one as they come in. But Jim, I had a really interesting experience this last week at my camp in Vermont. So we had a high performance camp for spring break. And I had a little boy come up, 10 years old. And he's being taught very stiff and outdated swings. And very outdated kind of swing paths. You know, not parabolic swing shapes, very linear, stiff swing shape. And, you know, follow through to the top of the shoulder, flat shots, you know, flat extension instead of working on top spin. And he's teaching a, a, a closed stance. The coaches had him taking exclusively closed stance, so he didn't have a clue how to move laterally. Very talented little boy. I really think he could be one of the best in New England, Jim. He's from Boston area. And he came to me, and I spent three days with this kid. And we really started making some progress. And basically, I just started teaching him some modern stuff, making some modern suggestions, getting the elasticity. I asked him to play with more topspin. You know, I asked him to work on shape. And I taught him some semi-open and open stances. And he's he starting to learn how to move well on the court. 
And it was just remarkable to see how much better he started playing with, with better modern instruction. And we didn't film too much of that, but it was, it was really, I have some vid, I have a little bit of video of that. It's, it's pretty amazing to see. Anyway, I'll try to get to some more comments here, but should I tell you guys whose system that was? It's a very famous coach, the stiff system. Can anyone guess? Does anyone want to take a guess? It's a very well-known technical coach. And he teaches a very closed, linear style. And he markets his technical programming to clubs around the country. And he certifies coaches. And so this little boy came from one of those clubs. And it was just remarkable. It was so stiff and robotic, the way this kid was swinging. And the other thing is, uh, that I, the other criticism that I have of this style of teaching and I, I'm not going to name the names because I don't, want, I don't like to get, you know, too personal with other coaches. And, you know, I'll just leave it at that. You know, it, it's a very well-known coach who is known for his uh, technical training of coaches. And he has, he, he, he has certified coaches around the country and probably the world. And so this little boy was from one of his clubs. And, man, robotic is the word. Robotic and stiff strokes. And the focus for this little boy was shifting the weight from the back foot to the front. I mean, what decade are we living in, guys? Uh, is it the 1960s? Is it the 1970s? It's the year 2019, and this little boy, his primary focus, his, the main thing his coaches were working on, they were obsessed with the kid shifting the weight from the back foot to the front foot and extending out following through to the neck. Come on, man. Come on, people. You know what I'm saying. I don't want to get on a rant here, but you know, I don't want to get upset here, but that, that's ridiculous. And here's a little boy who didn't know how to move laterally. He did not know how to move laterally. And these guys are obsessed with his back foot to front foot shift, which by the way, he was doing incredibly well. I mean, I don't think he could shift any better linearly. Anyway, the other thing about this system, and you may try to take a guess at who, who I'm talking about, they, they teach a bizarrely low contact point. You got kids playing golf out here. They're taking the ball down by the knees or below. And in the modern game, especially from the Spanish point of view, you want to try to take the ball a bit higher, like around the waist level, between the hip and the shoulder. Anyway, enough said. If anyone wants to follow up on that, take a guess who I'm talking about and let me know. We play a little guessing game. All right, Hugo says, and I'm getting through the comments here, guys. Thank you for being so patient. I'm sorry if I'm talking too much about this or that. Help, help me direct the conversation, and I, I will try to get to your topic. All right, Hugo says, I think especially for less advanced players, the use of the left hand and wrist as well to put topspin. Yes, definitely, Hugo. I know you're a big believer in that, and I think that's a very good comment. On the two-handed backhand, you need to use that left hand really well, and you need to get that, that upward brushing, and, and sometimes you need to flick the wrist to create different angles and spin. So yeah, absolutely. That, that is a major issue, the coordination with the left hand. That's very common that players don't have a good, good work with the left hand. The other thing is the wrists have to be 
the wrists and lower arms have to be loose on the two-hander. You know, you have to get that you have to get that flip, for lack of a better term. You know, you have to get the wrist moving. Some coaches say like a little circle in the wrist. You have to get the wrist. The wrists have to be pliable and flexible to generate the spin and the power on the two-handed backhand. And for many players, they have that old Jimmy Connors, or they have that. They have the the Chrissy Everett style two-hander, and I still see that two-hander all the time. I think down in the comments here, someone mentioned the Roddick two-hander. That's another very stiff type of two-hander. You know, Roddick had a very Roddick had a very weak left hand. His left hand was like almost continental. So he wasn't really driving like an Eastern forehand or a semi-Western. I think semi-Western is really more the way to go for the modern two-hander with the left hand. You know, not Roddick was very weak with that left hand, and his arms were also straight. And so he didn't get much, he didn't get much like stretch shortening cycle going on with the, with the lower arms. He didn't get much flip going on with the wrists. And so he was a little bit limited in what he could do with that thing. And we see a number of American players with two-handers that are kind of flawed. You know, uh-oh, says my iPhone storage is full. Am I going to get cut off, guys? I got to get a new iPhone, guys. This, this iPhone is not cutting it anymore. I got to get a new, like, the, the XS or the XR or something. I got to get something with some more firepower. I got to up my iPhone game here. Anyway, I hope I don't get cut off here, guys. I'll try to keep going. So, yeah, grips are interesting on the two-hander. Like, will we see more semi-Western grips? What about a Western? Crazy? Yeah, probably most of you guys are, like, crazy. But, you know, have, we haven't seen that too much. Western grips. Semi-Western, we see a lot more of that. I think probably semi-Western is the way to go, man. Uh, let's see, my buddy Jeremy Malfay is wa watching. Thank you, Jeremy, for tuning in. I appreciate you supporting the program. Jeremy is a regular, tunes in a lot. Bo Berglund says, how much left arm? So with the two-hander, that's a really good question. It's probably more of a biomechanical question if you need the exact ratio. Like we were talking about with the serve, the legs driving. I don't think there's an – I can't give you the exact amount, but I would say – it also depends on the style and the grips. I think depending on the grip structure, you're going to have more or left left versus right arm activation. So the ratio is going to be subtly different depending on the grip structure. That makes sense. For example, the players who are more, more with the right arm, so with the dominant hand, players who are closer to a an Eastern backhand, they tend to be more dominant with that arm. So they're really doing a lot with the front arm. If you remember the way, for example, Bjorn Borg hit his two-hander, it's almost like a one-hander. You know, there are some two-handers that are very close to a one-hander, and there's a lot of driving with the front arm. Kind of interesting. I don't see that that much, but occasionally you do see it. And Borg was, that was a very cool backhand. You know, when you see, you know who does that? Jack Sock is a little bit like that. And Jack Sock actually has a very good demo one-hander. Very interesting. I posted a lot of videos of Sock. So he has a very interesting combination with his grip structure because he's got a Western grip and then he flips it over and it becomes like an Eastern 
one-handed grip on the other side because he uses he hits with the same side of the racket most of the time which I think is another technical evolution that I've talked about a lot. More and more players hitting with the same side of the racket, not changing the grip. They're just flipping over the racket and hitting with the same side of the strings. You see that a lot too. That's very common now. So the more you see the, the dominant hand closer to Eastern, like an Eastern backhand, the more you're going to see dominance in that, in that arm, I think. I think that's a fair statement. And... When you see players who let go, sometimes that's an indication that their right arm was more involved. You know, they're, they're almost hitting a one-hander with the left hand just helping a little. So I would say in that case, the left hand is, you know, I'm just throwing out numbers, but whatever, you know, 40, 60 or something. But I think ideally we all try to shoot for like 60, 40 the other way. We try to get, you know, 60... 60% left, 40% right. There's also a, an interplay. So as I understand the biomechanics, there's a pulling effect with dominant arm. So the dominant arm pulls, and that creates the flip of the racket head. If you can follow my technical lingo. This is based on some of the research of Brian Gordon. And uh, a lot. I, I do a lot of my technical study on tennisplayer.net with John Yandel. And... Uh, Brian Gordon's done a lot of study of the two-hander, very interesting biomechanical studies. If you guys are interested in that kind of thing, if that's your cup of tea, go for it. And Rick Macy's done some good work on this with Brian. But, you know, I think what, what really happens is the, as I understand it, is the, the dominant arm and shoulder are accelerating, and that causes the racket and the wrist to flip to the inside. And then the left arm is continuing uh, the drive, kind of like a pull-push. So that's sort of what, what, you know, if you're talking about a ratio, it's both. It's the, the right arm pulling and then the left arm pushing, and that's where you get that, that extra acceleration or lag and snap, for a better word. Guys, don't get mad at me for my semantics, you know, whatever you want to call it. I know people get in big debates about, you know, whether you should call it a flip or a lag and snap or whatever. But I think a lot, a lot of the acceleration is coming from the, the dominant arm pulling and then the, the non-dominant arm pushing or, or providing a secondary acceleration. And then that contributes to the overall power of the shot. So there's like that pull-push and you definitely want to teach that. You know, you can encourage your players to get that. If, if you have uh, probably the ratio varies depending on, on, on the grips. Whether, whether one is more, more extreme or, or less extreme, you know, we can maybe talk about that a little more. Let me try to get to some of the other comments because we're getting a lot of, a lot of good comments on the board, guys. I really appreciate you guys uh, adding to the discussion. You know, that's what makes the show kind of cool. I like to answer questions. You know, I, I consider myself... You know, an expert on, on a lot of these topics, but so, there are some things that, I, that I, I'm not aware of or there's maybe some angle or perspective that I haven't heard before. And that's why that's where you guys come in and you, you open up my mind and you help me become a better coach. I appreciate it. I'll try to help you and you guys try to help me back and we all learn together. Peter says, the top is connected, but the bottom can't connect. Okay, on the two-hander. I think it can be it can be disconnected both ways. The it can be very dominant with the the bottom hand, but sometimes can be over dominant with the top hand. 
I think for me, I see more dominance with the bottom hand. I see the dominant arm. In, in most bad two-handers, I think it's a problem that the top hand, the non-dominant arm, is not helping enough. It's not providing that secondary acceleration after the pull of the dominant arm. That makes sense if you guys are following that. For me, that's where, that's where most two-handers are, are poor. That's where they break down. And so for those two-handers, you work a lot on the left-handed forehand. I think that that's a very good classic exercise. You know, have players do a lot of left-handed forehand work to develop their coordination and to develop the strength and things like that. And then you teach them the mechanics of the pull-push. You teach them how to flip, you know, that kind of thing. All right, let's see what we got here. Yeah, so Bo said, how much left arm, left side do you think? Right, 50-50, 60-40. Exactly, Bo, that's sort of what I was getting at. But I think it's, you should t explain to your students that there's, there's a, a, a pulling effect with the front shoulder, the dominant arm, and then there's the pushing or secondary acceleration happening with the back arm, the non-dominant arm, and in between, the, the wrists have to flow. The wrists have to shimmy. The wrists have to shimmer. The wrists have to flip. And that's where the the uh, the stretch shortening cycle happens, and the, the, so the muscles in the the muscles in the lower arm uh, are put on stretch, and in the shoulder, and that's where you get that fierce acceleration. The wrists have to move a lot. It's not the the old school two hander of Connors and Chris Everett. You have to be really careful that your students aren't too stiff. And I see a lot of two handers that are stiff like that. I do I see a lot of two handers who are kind of the old school stiff classic two-hander and I think those need to be upgraded with some wrist shimmy or shimmer or flip or lag and snap or whatever you want to call it and that comes from relaxing the arms the arms have to be elastic and then so as you pull through as you fire your hips and pull through and you accelerate with the the left side the uh, you get that that extra bit of acceleration from a compact swing that's the goal with the two-hander my friend Ben Sterner is watching Thank you, Ben. Appreciate you tuning in. Ben's an old friend. He's got some great little boys that he's raising, teaching them tennis. And Ben is a great sports, big sports fan. So I appreciate you, uh, you know, tuning into the program. Ben, let me know if you have any questions, if you want to share in our discussion. Bo says, do you think Andy Roddick would have been better with a one-hander? Really don't know about that. I'd have to see him as a junior, like how he was hitting. I'd have to look at some old videos of him. I think he'd probably just be better off learning how to flip the racket, flip the hands and wrists, and he should have been taught a, a better left-handed grip on that two-hander. You know, it's just so stiff. I, I probably think he should have just learned how to be more elastic on that thing. And he, somebody should have tweaked that left-hand grip where I believe he's continental. He has like a continental forehand grip with the left hand. Maybe someone can check that on high-speed video, but I believe he's actually in a left hand. I'm not talking about the right hand. I'm talking about his left hand. It's pretty much like a continental, and that's pretty weak. Weak on high balls and not good for spin development. So, man, he had a great forehand, didn't he? I would have liked he had a great serve. That backhand, man... Probably could have won more majors if he had a better backhand. And then he started slicing it a lot. You know, he started slicing it all the time. You know, what's up with that? You know, I mean, slice is great, but I think his two-hander could have been so much better, right? 
you start to see the same issues with a lot of American players. I'll tell you another one, like Tiafo. My boy Francis, that backhand is a little stiff, guys. You know what I'm talking about, and I love his game. I love Francis. I'm a big fan. I've seen him train since he was, since, since he was a kid with USDA. I've been kind of following his career, and I think he's awesome, man. But that backhand, man, oof. It's kind of like a, another Andy Roddick special going on there. You know, there's very, the, the elasticity is not really there, and, and, and he, he do, he, it doesn't look quite right. So, you know, it's a shame. It's a shame when you see that at a very high level. And these guys are such amazing athletes that they're going to make it work, and the forehands are going to be massive. You know, he's got a massive forehand. So there's ways to get around it, but you got to believe that to be the best, you know, to really compete well for Grand Slams, you can't have a backhand like that, can you? I mean, you're still going to make top 10 or 20 or whatever. I think Francis got a lot of potential, but it's tough. You got to be, you should have near perfect technique nowadays with all the technology we have and video analysis and all the resources out there. There's really no excuse not to have really high level modern technique, right? Really good technique. Okay, Spencer Weinberg is, is watching. Thank you, Spencer. Thank you for tuning in. I am getting through a, a waterfall, a cascade of comments here, guys. Here I go. I'm getting there. Come on. Michael Furman says, this show will be available as a podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, TuneIn, iTunes, and Google Play. Awesome. Get a thumbs up for that. So, yeah, if you like to listen to my voice when you're working out, or when you're at work, or when you're driving or something. We have had a lot of people catching the podcast now. It's very cool to have this show replayed on those platforms. And I know we, we had an issue with iTunes. iTunes is very difficult to get going, but we're going to have iTunes up very soon. I know I use iTunes for my podcast, so I'm hoping to get our show on that podcast fairly soon. Thank you, Michael, for all your help with that. Peter says, let's see, he says, one of my players right side, uh, the right before the forward swing on the forehand side has her whole arm straight and the elbow locked. It's almost like the opposite from making the contact point too close. Right, and that's kind of the setup that Roddick had if you're talking about the two-handed backhand, Peter, and I think I think you are, or, or maybe you're talking about the forehand, but... Basically, anytime your arm is locked, whether it's a forehand or a backhand, that is problematic, and you're not going to get much lag and snap. You're not going to get much elasticity. You're, you're going to limit your RPM, so you're, gonna, you're not going to get much effect on the ball. That's what they say in Spain, the effect. And you'll limit your maximum MPH, so the RPM and MPH is going down as soon as your arm is locked on anything. You're not going to have a... a the most efficient power production or spin production. And for me, that is the essence of teaching great technique for the modern game, is you wanna have an elastic arm, you wanna have massive RPM. I'm a big believer in spin, if we can teach it. Not everyone can play with big spin, but I think most players can nowadays. And, I, and obviously you need to have huge MPH. You see some of the ground strokes today are hitting close to 100 miles per hour. And you, it's hard to do that with a stiff arm. Come on. Kasif Ali is watching. Thank you for waving. I really appreciate you tuning in and supporting my show. 
Peter Banya says she makes the contact point on the forehand side too far. Okay, you're talking forehand. Same idea, you know, the same idea. If the forehand is stiff, if the forehand's not flipping, if it's not elastic, it's going to limit the spin. I bet she doesn't hit a lot of spin, does she, Peter? My buddy Pablo Nambella is watching. Thank you, Pablo, for tuning in regularly. I really appreciate it. I know it's late on a Sunday night. I appreciate you supporting the show. Having a great show tonight. We're talking technique. You know, my favorite subject, guys. High performance. Technical development. I'm a hardware coach. I love to talk hardware and, you know, the best, most efficient way to teach technique. I love talking about the future of technique. I love talking about where technique is evolving and trying to think creatively out of the box. How do we teach technique better? How do we teach world-class technique faster? You know, how do we eliminate bottlenecks and speed bumps and slowdowns? How do we how do we connect the dots faster to get kids from A to B quicker? Um, that's something that, that I, I have a, a passion for. And I love experimenting and working on technique with my students in the trenches every day. Every day I'm teaching. I was just teaching about 24 hours this weekend. I do a long weekend of teaching on court. And, you know, that's one of my joys and passions is to sort of uh, explore the technical side of the game. I enjoy software too. I enjoy working on players' minds and tactics, but my first love will always be hardware. And to me, it's like artistry. It's sort of like being a, an art, uh, a sculptor, for example. It's like being uh, an artist explore with a canvas in front of you or a piece of clay that you have to mold and shape and, and design. It's engineering. It's very interesting to me from a creative point of view. All right, Ray Harriman is watching. What's up, Ray? First time viewer on the program. Thanks for waving, Ray. Appreciate it. Can learn all about technique on Sunday night, Ray. Ray is a mom of one of my students. Appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, Jeremy Malfay is tuning in. Uh, Jeremy is one of our high IQ tennis coaches in the audience. Jeremy, what's up? Jeremy says, when figuring out what technical flaw to work on first in a stroke and in technique, do you choose what to work on first based on the sequential order of the stroke? Jeremy, maybe you could post a brief follow-up on that with a little more detail, like which stroke you're referring to, because there, there's more than one way to climb the mountain of fixing technique. I think you can focus on different areas at different times and still get success. So I don't think there's only one way, if that's clear enough. So if you have an issue with, with the forehand, maybe you see two or three issues in the kinetic chain. I don't think there's, there's only one way to go about it. I can tell you that I generally like to work from the ground up, which means you, I like to work on the footwork and the base of support and make sure that, and I, I, I kind of work my way up from there. I want to make sure a player is stable and has a good relationship with the ball in terms of contact point because that's going to corrupt anything I teach them with the swing. If they're not stable and they don't know how to use their legs well, they don't have a good support system, if they don't have a good relationship with the ball in terms of receiving the ball well with enough space, that's going to corrupt anything that I teach them with the swing with the hands. So for me, I like to start with the footwork and the base and then sort of migrate upward to the handwork. 
But, you know, is that the only way to do it? Probably not. I really think that if you know what the flaws are, you can you can hit them at different time at, at different times. There can be different sequences and you can still be successful. But I do think that there's a an ideal method or process to building technique and I and I think that the method that I that I use with my players I think is really good, really efficient. And that's what I've been trying to perfect, perfect my craft as a technical coach and find the most efficient way to progress students through the technical stages. Not that you have to do it in one specific, like you have to change a grip before you change a follow through or you have to change this or that before something else, but you, you got to know what's on the agenda, know what you want to fix, and then hopefully find the fastest way to progress a player through those changes. And yeah, probably if you're on court with me, you might see that I, I start in a certain, certain, I start certain fixes first in general and Maybe that works best for me, but I, I do think there's there's probably some leeway there in how you like to start it. Like, let's take the serve, for example. Could you teach the serve from, from the upper body and then down to the legs? Yeah, I know, I know a lot of coaches who do it that way. You know, they don't teach any legs at first. They teach the arm mechanics, and then they add the leg drive. I think it's more efficient to teach from the ground up, legs first, and then sort of going upward into the power position and, and the upper body mechanics. But you can definitely teach it well the other way. I th Then we'd have to debate, you know, which way is faster. Basically, whatever way you choose, you always want to reassess at the end and sort of take a diagnostic of what you did and do sort of a debriefing and say, you know, was that the fastest way I could have done it? Maybe if I started with some with a different uh, technical cue or technical flaw to work on, I could have accelerated this player faster. So that's definitely something to consider. Try different ways and see which way is the most efficient and that's easiest for your player to learn and gets them from A to B faster. I think I've been doing that for years and I have a really clear picture of how to do that well. Maybe I've made some mistakes along the way. I think now where I am, in in my technical uh, in my technical skill with players on the court based on my experience i think i have a really good sense of what works well and works quickly versus what might not be the most efficient way to do it and that's part of the reason why we're doing a lot of tutoring and we're doing classes on at the online school and on youtube is i'm trying to share that method with folks so that they can evaluate it and there's a lot of critics and naysayers there's some haters who don't believe it's possible to do things differently, but you know I, I see it I see it differently, and I, I see a clearer, more quicker, more efficient pathway to technical success, and that's one of the reasons why I talk about it a lot. I like to share that stuff. Yeah, Gordon Paul gives me a clap. What's up, Gordon? Thanks for tuning in. Gordon is a big supporter of the show and a big supporter of my my work and my coaching. Thank you, Gordon. I appreciate that very much. Thank you for tuning in on this late Sunday night. Peter says more racket speed from your left from your left side is better. Yeah. Exactly. You you need you need the left arm contributing to the two-hander. My friend John Logan Minier is watching. What's up, buddy? How are you? Thank you for waving. John is a regular on the program. Usually has some very good technical comments that he shares. We're having a very nice 
sort of round virtual round table here, guys. Good discussion on technique. We've talked a lot about the two-handed backhand and its many permutations, its many variations. Talking about, uh, you know, that the we we started the discussion talking about the serve and which leg is are the which leg how the legs are contributing the ratio of contribution on the the leg drive on the serve and we've been having a great talk about the two-handed back and if you have any other subjects that you want to hit before i run out of gas here i'm getting a little sleepy but before i run out of gas if you have any other subjects whether they're technical or you know we can have a discussion about anything you want i know probably some of you have been following my my discussion about the first four shots myth that I talk about a lot. You know, if anyone wants to hit on that, we can discuss that. I get a little tired of arguing that subject because I know that there are a lot of specious and fallacious arguments being thrown around regarding that tactical subject. And I just get sort of tired of explaining to people how their reasoning and logic. What's up, guys? Sorry, we lost our live feed there, but I'm back. And we can wrap up the show, and I'll try to get to a few more of those comments. Maybe you can add them in if you'd like. If you have any final comments, I'll, let, I'll wait for everyone to tune in again. But sorry about that, guys. I think I need to get my my new iPhone with super memory and super processor going. But, you know, sometimes that happens with the Facebook feed. So if you guys want to want to tune in, I will just wrap here few, for a few minutes let me know if you have any questions. I don't have the comments that were up there before, so if you have any last-minute, late-night technical questions or, or tennis questions, please let me know. We'll pick up the feed. One thing that I don't know if you guys kind of kind of off-topic, but you know, while everyone's kind of tuning in, does anyone have a solution for? stiff shoes like my my friend hugo is telling me i should take new shoes and wash them like soak them and then dry them i've never heard of that but it sounds kind of interesting you know but i have this terrible situation where every time i get a new pair of shoes my feet always hurt i hate new shoes i love shoes that are kind of soft and you know are well conformed to your foot and it's like torture every time I get a new pair. I got to wear them in. It, it takes a long time for me to get them soft and comfortable. So I'm just wondering if anyone has a solution to that, you know. I like the idea of sort of soaking my shoes and then drying them a bunch and trying to soften them up somehow. But it reminds me of like an old baseball mitt. You know, who, who wants to play baseball with one of those new mitts that aren't that aren't supple you know you can't catch a ball with one of those but then you have an old mitt that's been greased and you know that's worn and it feels so comfortable in your hand it's the same thing with with shoes like i have this old pair of shoes right now that i love so much and the tread is com completely worn out like it's it's very slippery but they're so comfortable they're like slippers and I love wearing them. The other thing I don't understand is all the experts say you're supposed to replace your shoes regularly, but I hate replacing my shoes because I love the feel of, a, of my shoes that I've worn for a long time. They, they, they've conformed to my foot and they feel like a slipper. They're so snug and, and they feel so comfortable to me. I don't want to upgrade and change to a new pair. I mean, what do you guys think about that? Did we lose all of our, all of our 
participants. We had like an incredible roundtable going there, guys. If you posted a question on the last feed, I, I can't see it now. So if you wouldn't mind tuning in and, and adding your your comments, and then I'll try to answer. Or I can just go sort of into uh, my wrap-up, and we can close out the show. We had an unbelievable show. We, we're really digging into the two-handed backhand technique, which I think is fascinating. It, there, there's a multitude of a variety of of grips, and there's there's a lot to discuss with the two-hander, especially the next evolution of the two-hander. We talked about the serve a bit and some of the biomechanics of the serve. And if there's any other questions on on technique or tennis, please let me know because I'm getting a little sleepy. Sammy has checked out. My dog Sammy is totally sleeping and usually that is a sign for me also to plan to check out as well. But I would like to thank everyone for tuning in. I really do appreciate you supporting the program. This is my late night Sunday talk show, uh, Sunday night Q&A. I try my best to answer all of your questions, whether they're technical or otherwise, and I really do appreciate the intelligent conversation and round table. It's a learning experience for me, and I hope it's a good learning experience for you guys too as well. If you'd like to study with me online, you can go to our school, clta.teachable.com, clta.teachable.com. We've got some really cool stuff there. We have a library of almost 200 videos of mine, we have new courses there, and we're, we have some, some new exciting courses that we're producing in the next month or two coming out as well. Our most popular course right now is our forehand course on the, the next-gen Spanish forehand, and we, we've had a number of, of subscribers to that course. And I'm looking forward to working with some of you guys from a distance you know, online via email and WhatsApp and looking at your videos and helping you with your forehand work uh, from a distance. And if you're interested in coming to train with me, you can always come to New York or you can come to my club. My tennis club is in Londonderry, Vermont. And we're doing a lot of coaching workshops and camps there. We have a coaching workshop coming up on April 1st called Building the Spanish Forehand. That's very apropos. That's one of the things I love to do, building that massive whipping forehand. And I think the Spanish do that better than anyone. So we've got that coming up April 1st. That is next Monday. That is a coaching workshop. You can come train with me in person. And it's, it is a certified USPTA and PTR continuing education course. So you can get your credits there. Oh, Sammy's sleeping, Jim. Sammy's sleeping. You want me to say hello? There he is. I didn't want to bother him too much tonight. He was tired. He was hanging out, doing a lot of cool stuff, probably running around today. Who knows what he was doing. Yeah, uh, Jim says Doug Ang does a good job on the two-handed backhand. I know Doug pretty well, Jim. We've hung out at some conferences, and he's a really smart dude, and he does do a good job. He's wrote, written some good articles on TennisPlayer.net on the two-handed backhand, and I would definitely recommend those to anyone in the audience who is interested in learning more about some of the grip structures or biomechanics of the two-handed backhand. We had a great discussion tonight about the two-hander. If you missed it, go back and check the comments and check the check out the show. Remember, the show is now a podcast, so you can listen to me and you can get your technical fix, you know, study biomechanics and and be entertained and be educated when you're on the run.
Uh, if you're working out, you know, I love to listen to podcasts when I'm running and when I'm cycling or when I'm in the gym. And that's one of the best ways to improve your knowledge and not waste time. You know, it's really efficient way to learn. So check out our podcast. We're on all the platforms now. Uh, check out our online school at clta.teachable.com. And what else? We have our, you know, our YouTube channel is blowing up. We have over 2,000 subscribers now on YouTube and we're growing fast. We want to try to hit 10,000 uh, in the next year or so. We're trying to build up a really big following on YouTube. So guys, please tell your friends, support us, subscribe to our YouTube channel, give us a thumbs up whenever you can. And, and most important thing, probably tell your friends to tune in, tell your friends to follow us. And that way we can build a, an even bigger intelligent community of tennis learners. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. I really appreciate you guys supporting the show. It was a really great show, great discussion, and I will see you on the next program. I will check the comments of the last feed, and I will try to answer all the questions that I missed. I know we had a big waterfall of comments, and I got disconnected, and I didn't get to all of them, so I will try to check, check the comments. Check back later uh, on the Facebook comments uh, area of the, of the, of the posting. And I will try to answer any of your comments there. And you can also add any, any questions that you have that I missed. Good night, amigos. Have a good night. I think it's time for sleepy night night. As Jeremy Malfay said, it's time for a little bit of sleepy night night. Have a great week. God bless. Good night. Thanks for listening to the show. You can find archives of all Chris's shows at youtube.com forward slash Chris Lewitt or search Chris Lewitt on YouTube. You can watch the live video broadcast of this program weekly on Sunday nights, where you can ask questions and comment in real time on Facebook Live. Just search Chris Lewitt on Facebook to join the live show. Please share our programs with friends and join our online community. You can join Chris Lewitt's Online Tennis Academy at clta.teachable.com or visit chrislewitt.com for more info. Chris's latest published articles and additional video resources can be found at prodigymaker.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.